Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill Miller. Today, joining me to talk about nutrition related to spondyloarthritis is Dr. Elena Philippou. She is an associate professor in nutrition and dietetics at the University of Nicosia in Cyprus and a visiting lecturer in nutritional sciences at King's College in London. Her research focuses on diet for the prevention of degenerative disease and more specifically, the effects of the Mediterranean diet, chrononutrition, which is the science of how meal timing, food, metabolism, carbohydrate manipulation on cognitive function, and cardiometabolic factors and rheumatic disease. Her research aims to identify key dietary factors that can prevent disease and or improve outcomes. She has extensive experience as a practicing dietitian, advising adults and children on diet related issues for 20 years. She's also the host of a growing YouTube channel where she posts educational videos. Today, I know she's going to inspire us with some easy to digest scientific information on nutrition, health, and wellness. Dr. Philippou, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill, and thank you, Spondylitis Association of America, and also for this, uh, of course, this kind invitation and this kind introduction. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, this is an exciting topic, and I think it's one that a lot of listeners are interested in. How do you change your outcomes based on uh, what we eat. So how does nutrition play a role in managing spondyloarthritis symptoms or related diseases? Yes, right, definitely. And we are here to inspire people so that they can actually make a difference. So although we know that genetics is significantly implicated in the pathogenesis of spondyloarthritis, but also other inflammatory diseases, we also know that the environment, so lifestyle, including diet and other factors such as stress and sleep, also play important roles both in the onset of disease or the severity of disease. So it's really important to understand why. And we think that uh, since we know that inflammation is a culprit in disease development um, and also symptoms such as, for example, pain and stiffness, diet can be directly uh, implicated because it can provide anti-inflammatory foods. And we will explain what these are in a minute. Or on the other side of the coin, um, provide pro-inflammatory foods. So increase the risk of someone uh, developing the disease. Or if they have the disease, uh, perhaps actually make the symptoms worse. But um, diet also has indirect roles. Um, for example, in increasing or reducing comorbidities. Comorbidities include obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, all of this um, might also be associated with any rheumatic disease. And so it's very important that uh, one of the factors to reduce inflammation in general is achieving and maintaining a healthy body weight. So we know that, for example, if someone accumulates weight around the tummy area, this is what we call visceral fat, this increases inflammation. 
So the body produces some factors called inflammatory cytokines, and these can actually worsen the symptoms. And there is evidence to suggest from research that if you lose weight, then your symptoms can actually get better. Um, the other thing is that some corticosteroids, so medicines that are used uh, for people with uh, spondyloarthritis or other rheumatic disease, can also increase uh, the risk of weight gain. So it is very important that the rheumatologist works very closely with a registered dietitian so that all of these factors are taken into account. Another thing that would be, would be good to uh, talk about at this point is the fact that there is very high quality research that omega-3 fatty acids reduce inflammation. So where can we find omega-3 fatty acids? We can find them from oily fish, such as sea bass, sea bream, salmon, sardines, trout, and it's good to consume those a couple of times a week, or um, from things like walnuts and chia seeds. These are plant-based omega-3. And if necessary, I take an omega-3 supplement always with uh, the advice from the rheumatologist. So these are some of the things that um, we know uh, affect rheumatic disease to start That's with. That is a wonderful list of foods. Uh, what, in your experience, are the most common deficiencies seen in patients with spondyloarthritis or mm -hmm. related diseases? Yes, definitely. There is, uh, from my experience, but also from research evidence, uh, the, uh, a lot of people with rheumatic disease in general and spondyloarthritis in particular present with vitamin D deficiency. So. On diagnosis, it is very common that people are actually deficient already in vitamin D. And actually, there is a study suggesting that uh, even three quarters of people, when they were diagnosed with uh, um, spondyloarthritis, they were already deficient. So we're not actually sure whether they were deficient because vitamin D is involved in the body's immune reaction. So this is like the reason that the one of the reasons, at least, that they were more likely to develop the disease, um, or uh, that is something else. But uh, for sure, vitamin D is uh, something to check. Always check with your doctor on diagnosis and uh, throughout uh, throughout life. Um, Another, and, and why is vitamin D important? Because vitamin D acts like a hormone really in the body. So although we know that it's very important in regulating calcium in the body and therefore bone metabolism, so we are at risk of breaking our bones or having osteoporosis when we have deficient, deficient vitamin D, we also know that it plays important roles in uh, inflammation and immune function. So it is very important for the whole of the body. Um, and uh, to add to that, there is evidence that if you are deficient in vitamin D, then the disease severity and the structural damage uh, might be more. So it's very important, as I said before, to actually check this. Another one that people should always be aware of is folic acid, because some of the medications, such as methotrexate, uh, might get the person deficient in folic acid, and they need to take a supplement. And through the diet, um, we can get folic acid from green leafy vegetables. 
Um, we can get it from uh, sunflower seeds, uh, whole grains. And to also add to the vitamin D, because we didn't mention that, uh, vitamin D from the diet, we can get it from egg yolks or dairy products, also dark green leafy vegetables, um, some fortified cereals, uh, but also from the sun. So sunshine exposure, at least 10 to 15 minutes, uh, at least three to four times a week. And would you recommend that patients increase vitamin D, right? I live in Chicago where the sun doesn't come out very frequently in the winter. And yeah. so should we be increasing vitamin D through the seasons? Mm -hmm. It's very important to get your vitamin D concentration in the blood tested, first of all, to see where you are, uh, because there are many factors in the way that we live that affect our vitamin D concentration. So, for example, staying inside all day or what you talked about, not having the sun out or also sunscreen use, which is good to use sunscreen, but then again, we don't produce vitamin D when we do that, or covering up ourselves. And sometimes we need to take a supplement, uh, and, and, and I say we because it applies to everyone, um, during the winter months, and then not so much during the summer months. But we wouldn't be able to know this unless we get tested. And sometimes people need to take a supplement to... Uh, uh, correct their vitamin D concentration and then take another dose to maintain that corrected concentration. So if they have a very low concentration, they take the supplement first to get the concentration right, and then they just need to maintain it. So everyone should speak to their rheumatologist to get a test first. Right, because we know once we, once we understand where um, we sit, uh, we, can make it, we can make changes. Exactly, yes, because it doesn't, it doesn't mean that everyone is at the, the same stage. There is deficiency, there is insufficiency, but some people might be okay. Um, and another, uh, another problem that sometimes presents and research suggests about one in 10 people might have it is anemia and also uh, anemia caused by uh, um, iron or anemia caused by vitamin B12. And vitamin B12 anemia is especially uh, if someone is a vegan. So vitamin B12 is found in animal foods. So if you're a vegan, then you might need to take a supplement uh, because it's very difficult to get it from uh, plant foods. So I would say the first thing to do on diagnosis is ask for some uh, tests on whether there is any deficiency, at least for these four nutrients. And with some of your other work, I'm interested in what most patients are looking to get rid of is pain, inflammation, but the, the foods you mentioned and the supplements you mentioned and the omega-3s all play into our overall system health, right? Our cognitive mm -hmm. health. Uh, is there a tie between your cognitive health and the disease? Yes, of course. Um, I mean, we, I would say that we shouldn't be looking as a person as in they have this disease or they have that disease. We need to be considering the whole person. So we need to be eating um, healthily to support our, uh, our body in general. So, for example, having a diet that has um, a lot of uh, fish and whole grains, uh, plant-based foods such as legumes, fruits, vegetables, uh, nuts, seeds, 
uh, avoiding too much red meat. This is definitely good for the brain, it's good for the heart, and it's good for uh, reducing inflammation as well. So we cannot separate anything. I love that approach. We are yeah. a system, right? Yeah, <laughs> we have to keep our yeah. processes maintained. Uh, and, and it's also, sorry to interrupt, but it's also very good to uh, think about the gut as well. So we know that uh, in inflammatory rheumatism, there is what we call dysbiosis. So um, perhaps we should explain what uh, happens first in the gut. So in our gut, we have trillions of bacteria that live with us and they are healthy for us. Uh, but when there is an imbalance, this is called dysbiosis. It's actually a Greek word. It means not having a healthy relationship between two, two people, let's say, <laughs> or two uh, specific um, things. And so what we know though is that if someone follows a mediterranean diet and there is research in uh, rheumatic disease of people following mediterranean type diet then uh, the bacterial balance is better and the types of bacteria and the diversity of them which is very important so we need to have a lot of different types um, and then we also know that um, people that have a better gut bacteria seem to also be better in terms of their symptoms. So diet plays a huge role in this. That's fascinating. And are there foods or ingredients that spa patients should avoid? Okay. Um, first of all, let's, I think, explain a little bit of what happens if there is inflammation in the body so that we understand how diet works in that way. Uh, if I start from the beginning, so inflammation is something that we want. Uh, it's the body's way to fight injury, okay? It's a normal reaction. It happens, for example, when we uh, develop fever, when we get the flu or we hurt our ankle and then it swells. This is inflammation. This is acute inflammation. Uh, in someone with rheumatic disease, but also other diseases, there is what we call chronic inflammation. So this is a low-grade inflammation. It's, it's uh, happening over a long period of time, but at a lower grade compared to the acute inflammation that will cause, for example, your fever. Um, now, how is diet involved in all of this? Um, diet can increase inflammation or reduce inflammation. So when we eat, um, there is an increase in our blood sugar, in our blood fat, and this is what we call the postprandial state, so the state after eating. So if we consume a lot of sugary foods, let's say a sugary soda, okay, um, then there will be a lot of sugar in our system, and this will have a high glycemic index, so it will cause a, a very big increase in our blood sugar, and our body will... Uh, then have what we call a pro-inflammatory response. So it will, uh, um, it will do some metabolic reactions that will end up with some end products that cause damage to the joints. Uh, so then we have a combination of high blood sugar, but also high insulin because we're producing insulin to take the sugar from the blood into our, um, our cells. And this... Uh, if we have too much insulin, we also then end up with a lot of visceral fat accumulation. So accumulation around the organs, of uh, around the tummy area and around the internal organs. And then this in turn also produces more inflammation. Uh, 
So you can understand it's like a cascade of events that happens if we are consuming these foods that are pro-inflammatory. Of course, this is made worse if we are stressed, if we don't sleep, if we are not exercising and we're just sitting all day. Um, and then we also have another way to get inflammation, unfortunately, which is by consuming what we call processed foods and ultra-processed foods. So to make it easy for you, Jill, how to differentiate between uh, a food that is very processed is if you look at the package and you cannot uh, understand what it says. So these uh, ingredients, you cannot understand them or you cannot find them at home. You wouldn't be able to have them on your bench. Then this is an ultra processed food. It's better not to, uh, not to consume that food. And the reason why this is bad is that there is some evidence that it affects our gut microbiota again. So it promotes the less healthy bacteria compared to the more healthy ones. And um, we talked about some of the effects of the gut bacteria before, but um, another effect of the gut bacteria is that they produce what we call neurotransmitters, such as, for example, serotonin. So what is serotonin? It helps us relax. Um, and if we are eating these ultra-processed foods, then the neurotransmitters and the other antibodies and vitamins and hormones that help us will not be produced to the same extent or they will be affected uh, because our gut bacteria is affected. Now, let's see what to do now to uh, reduce all these effects. Yes. There is a, yes, because I think this is what um, people are really interested in, what kind of tools perhaps to give them. Let's say we eat foods that contain what we call polyphenols. So polyphenols would be found in plant foods that are nice and colorful. Uh, for example, um, berries, blueberries, strawberries, or oily fish, for example, that we mentioned before, which has omega-3 fatty acids or things like extra virgin olive oil, which also has some phytochemicals. Phytochemicals means chemicals from the plant, okay? So all of this reduce the inflammation in the body. And there is actually evidence to show that uh, the reduction in inflammation and the consumption of these foods is also related to then less um, severity of disease. So I would say to people, choose a lot of different colors. Uh, some people say the phrase, eat the rainbow. I really love that. Um, eat a lot of different colors every day, like choose, for example, blueberries and then red peppers and then oranges and, you know, even dark chocolate would be very good. Um, have some good quality green tea, which contains uh, polyphenols as well. Uh, have uh, legumes as a meal, lentils. All of these contain a lot of um, high-quality um, ingredients and polyphenols and phytochemicals that are really, really there to reduce inflammation. That's interesting. And I think it's... So the, the rule of thumb is eat the rainbow. Yeah. Eat things close to their original source. Very, very good, yes. And avoid labels that you cannot reader understand, understand. Mm -hmm. and I can remember over the last 20 years or so even when my kids were younger on diet people would in the U.S. anyway we would look at it and call it the white diet mm -hmm. because everything on the plate was white uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of it was processed or came from uh, not from plant-based or animal-based mixes so that's really interesting and 
let me ask you, I want to get to research, but I want to ask you a question because I'm fascinated by the, the, uh, the science of chrononutrition. Uh, and I think of this as what a lot of us look at as the craze of fasting and intermittent fasting. Can you comment a little about that in terms of, is it a good approach? and particularly a good approach for people who might have a rheumatic disease? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, in spondyloarthritis, there isn't much evidence on intermittent fasting, but there is some research in um, rheumatoid arthritis. And actually, this is very interesting because uh, some of the research that the research that was done years ago started like that they would put people on a, a fasting diet uh, eating very very little uh, not intermittent fasting but fasting and then they would then go on to do like introduce some foods now the evidence that we have now for example for something like intermittent fasting which i think first we need to explain what that is it means that you eat at a particular window. So for example, uh, the most common one is what we call 16-8. So the person will eat for only eight periods, eight hours, excuse me, eight hours in a day. And then they will not eat for 16 hours. So typically they will eat between 12 o'clock um, noon and eight o'clock in the evening. And then between eight o'clock in the evening and then the next day, 12 o'clock, they're only allowed to drink water, tea and coffee if they want but without any additives, not even sweeteners. So how does this help? There is some evidence to suggest that it might actually reduce some of the inflammation, not necessarily in spondyloarthritis, as I said, the research is not there yet, uh, but in, in general, uh, it reduces some of the inflammatory factors because what happens is something that we call autophagy. So autophagy is the body eats itself. Again, this is Greek. Uh, after a year. <laughs> so it eats itself. And um, this eating of itself, it basically removes some of the inflammatory factors. So I would say that we need to, if someone wants to try this, they need to be really careful that I wouldn't try for sure. I wouldn't try with 16 hours. Let's say you're someone that usually eats just right before bed. Okay. What I would do is say, try 12 hours. So for example, if you sleep, go to bed at 11, then try to stop eating at nine in the evening, the, the most to start with. Okay. And then try to start again at nine in the morning. Uh, this would be a, a starting point for someone and see if you notice any differences. And then if you do, then you can add a little bit of time, then maybe take it up to 14 hours and see how it goes, but definitely drink water. And definitely not try this if you're frail, elderly, and speak to your doctor or healthcare provider if you're taking any medication, especially uh, at times that you're supposed to be fasting, because this medication might not work if you're fasting. So you need to make sure that you uh, speak to your doctor first. That's really good advice. It's it's intermittent fasting has become so a buzzword uh, mm. for people, but I don't think everyone approaches it safely. And I, in yeah. particular, when you have a chronic disease, it's really important to align your own Absolutely. needs. And the other thing really is to make sure that when you're eating, so this eating window is actually a healthy diet. 
because if you do intermittent fasting and then for eight hours you're eating uh, unhealthily, then you're not doing any favors to yourself. You're actually making your body worse. And some people might also experience some problems during the period of time that they're not eating, like they might feel dizzy or have a headache or have constipation. Um, so that's why I said that you should always speak to your doctor and start slowly. Um, and then if you don't feel well, uh, don't continue. But another approach which would be really helpful for people is just try not to eat two hours before going to bed. This is very easy to do and it really, really helps with sleep as well. That's a great place to start. Yeah. I know I was, I was one of the people that went right to 16 hours and I was miserable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it did me any favors. Uh, so I don't recommend it. Uh, I want to switch a little bit before we run out of time to research. You've talked through a lot of research, uh, but are there any recent studies or research on the connection between nutrition and spondyloarthritis, uh, you know, low inflammatory diet, gluten-free diets, Mediterranean diet specifically? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the research interest is increasing, especially in spondyloarthritis. Um, the, there is a study that uh, has come out recently called SANUT study. So here, um, what they did is that they wanted to assess diet and associate the diet with disease activity. Um, and they found that if uh, people are taking low intakes of, if the, if the intake is low in omega-3 fatty acids, so for example, the fish that we mentioned before, and also fiber, and they took uh, a lot of ultra-processed foods, so the packaged foods that we mentioned before, these were associated with a worse uh, disease activity, specifically in spondylarthritis. So this is a, a very important uh, message, avoid these foods. Um, another study in psoriatric arthritis, the DIETA trial, uh, in this study, it was shown that uh, people actually here, they randomized them into one of three groups. Uh, they had a group uh, that had a diet and they gave them a placebo supplement. Placebo means a supplement that doesn't give you anything. You're thinking that you're taking medication, but it's not medication. You're just taking the pill. And then the other group had a diet and an omega-3 uh, supplement or a placebo um, uh, generally. And they showed that after 12 weeks, uh, if they did this diet that was low in energy, uh, then their uh, joint disease activity became uh, better, uh, even if they didn't lose so much weight. So just by consuming a lower energy diet compared to before, they were uh, better in terms of their joint disease activity. And I see this in my patients, Jill. So, for example, some people would say to me that... Uh, I started doing the, the dietary plan that you, you advised me. And from the first week, I already felt better. So even before losing weight, because this is, this is a brilliant thing of uh, eating healthily. And then in this study particularly, if they added omega-3, then uh, they found that there were some uh, better body composition changes. So for example, they lost a, a little bit more fat uh, in, this, in this particular study. And the study was lower, it was omega-3 placebo, or was it lower carbohydrate? 
uh, more energy? No, they they did a general uh, lower lower energy diet. They didn't necessarily uh, think about the carbohydrates. But the carbohydrates, uh, if you're thinking about reducing carbohydrates, it's not all carbohydrates that uh, are a problem in general. So most people gain weight when they eat what we call, again, what you mentioned before, the white carbohydrates or very high sugary foods or even savory foods, you know, salty foods like crisps and uh, things like that. So carbohydrates, for example, coming from legumes or from quinoa and uh, sweet potato or uh, things like oats, these are healthy types of carbohydrates and uh, you can incorporate them in your diet without causing uh, an increase in body weight. Um, okay, so another study that uh, would be interesting to mention um, is um, a study where they looked at weight loss uh, in psoriatic arthritis. And what they did here is that they actually followed people up for two years and they found that those people who... Um, sustains the weight loss, uh, continued to have improvements in their disease activity, but also in their serum lipids, which has to do with uh, heart disease risk, in their glucose, their blood sugar. Okay, so some people in this study even um, were allowed to stop some of the medication to reduce their blood pressure. So this is amazing that, you know, wow. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing because we need, again, to remember this thing about the system. It's not just about the disease, you know, the immune-related disease. It's all also uh, the disease related to heart disease and, you know, diabetes that anyone can have um, uh, when they get older, especially. Um, uh, and then another study, I think, that is very kind of positive to mention is uh, one where they looked at Mediterranean diet adherence. So what they did here is um, they took people um, in, a, uh, in Italy, in a center in Italy, and they took people with axial spondylarthritis. And then they looked at whether these people were uh, consuming the Mediterranean diet or not. And they found that if they did consume um, more of a Mediterranean-type diet, then they had a better profile in their disease. And the more they adhered to the Mediterranean diet, the better their um, CRP, for example, was, which is, has to do with uh, inflammation. Um, so this had a beneficial impact in the activity of their disease. And what about uh, gluten? Okay, so in terms of gluten, there is a lot of discussion because... Uh, there is a um, similar genetic predisposition between rheumatic disease and uh, celiac disease, which is celiac disease is an autoimmune disease where people actually cannot consume any gluten. Um, gluten, we must say, is the protein that is found in wheat, in barley and rye. Um, so it's not really... When, when people with rheumatic disease say that uh, they're affected by gluten, this is not really only their placebo. So it's not just their impression or what they think that they are. Some people would be affected. Um, but we need to be very careful here. Um, so people need to get tested if they see that they have some of the symptoms that are related to celiac disease. For example, bloating, um, and things like uh, some deficiencies, uh, like uh, serious iron deficiencies, um, 
or uh, chronic fatigue uh, or things like um, um, uh, very uh, big bouts of diarrhea, um, etc. So the um, Although there is a higher risk for people with uh, rheumatic disease to have also celiac disease, we shouldn't just go and recommend avoiding gluten. Uh, people need to get tested. And, and the American College of Gastroenterology, for example, um, gives us a recommendation that you are a candidate to get tested if you have a first degree relative with celiac disease. So, for example, if you're um, uh, children or if your parents or your brothers or your sisters have celiac disease or if you have these active gastrointestinal symptoms that I mentioned before. Um, so if you do get tested and you are positive for um, celiac disease, then you, you definitely need to follow a diet that uh, avoids gluten. But this should be done with uh, the assistance and the recommendations of a registered dietitian. Um, and why do I say this? Because gluten-free diets can also be deficient in some nutrients if they're not followed correctly. So there is evidence to suggest that they might be deficient in whole grains or in vitamins, such as, again, vitamin D or B12 or calcium. And uh, there is also some evidence to say that people following gluten-free diets might have more concentration of heavy metals in their, in their body, such as mercury. And maybe this is because they end up eating a lot of rice and uh, sometimes rice has these heavy metals. Um, and so if someone is following gluten-free diet, it's better that they choose foods that are naturally free in gluten, such as legumes, whole grain rice, so quinoa, corn, potatoes, sweet potatoes, fruit, vegetables, um, gluten-free whole grain oats, and eat only in moderation the foods that were um, manufactured as gluten-free, such as gluten-free pasta and gluten-free biscuits and, and cakes, etc. And I'm saying this because we need to be careful um, in not increasing the risk of other disease in these people when they're following a, a gluten-free diet. That's a really great point. And it brings us back to the super processed foods. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is a big circle. Um, well, this has been fascinating. I am so grateful for your time. Let me ask you one additional question. And if you have any closing thoughts, uh, it sounds like your work has created out better outcomes for people with rheumatic diseases over time. And are you hopeful that when people do follow uh, a nutritious diet, that they do have a better outcome with the disease? Yes, Jill. I think that um, uh, our research and also experience with seeing patients is uh, that following uh, what we call an anti-inflammatory diet, so a Mediterranean-type diet, uh, which will be based on, as we said before, legumes, uh, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, nuts, seeds, uh, fruit, vegetables, of course, poultry, some eggs, but then reducing the amount of red meat and processed foods and, you know, these sweets and sodas, etc. Then there is a reduction in inflammation in the body. The person will feel better. Their weight is more likely to be maintained or they can lose weight with this plan. Of course, 
uh, again, uh, with the input of a, a registered dietitian, I stress that. And then also this reduces the risk of these comorbidities. So osteoporosis, which is very common, and then cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, etc. So uh, I am, um, and I think in the, in the next few years, we will see more evidence coming out, especially on things like uh, how to promote a healthy gut, which now we know, we, we didn't mention this, but we know that it's very important to take probiotics as well from food. So live yogurt, kefir, if you've heard of that. It's yes. Like, yeah. So crowd, uh, tempeh. And then prebiotics as well, which is the food for the bacteria. Again, fiber, um, artichokes and uh, onions and garlics and bananas, all of these contain the food for the bacteria. So keeping our gut healthy means also better uh, overall health and less symptoms. Well, good. I'm gonna, you're making me hungry. Um, <laughs> and I have an avocado, banana and dark chocolate smoothie waiting for me on after that my hangout. That sounds hangover. brilliant. <laughs> Add some seeds and, to that as well. Maybe chia seeds. So yeah, got some in the, in the fridge. I, I always say I try to get a, a an 80% in life on diet, but I, it's really important. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope as your journey continues and ours does, that maybe we can have you back to talk a little more. I would love that. It has been really great to talk to you and um, uh, I would love to be back anytime. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you much. so much for joining us from Cyprus today. Thank you. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.